Jerry Lynn. Hello. Wow. How how are you? It was so quiet. I didn't know I was on yet. Yeah. Yeah, we're on. <laughs> okay. Wow. No. Glad I didn't uh, embarrass myself. Well, I always embarrass myself. Who am I kidding? <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, Are you recording? Yes. Good. Good deal. Tonight, I am a highly trained professional, so that's bad news for all the way around. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of things to worry about. Yes, oh. we do. So how are uh, you? Uh, my nose is still throbbing. It's been, let's see, I think it was two Mondays ago so that I got the nose surgery. Right. So, yeah, so... Now, now, don't they call that rhinoplasty? I, what I had, he listed off three different procedures he was doing, and I don't know if rhino entered it at all. <laughs> it may have. I, you know, it was, it was a foreign language. You know, it's funny, you know, you but, get, uh, you get surgery yeah. done and you're very self-conscious about stuff and they literally have to call the surgery on your face rhino. It's terrible. <laughs> well, if you ask terrible. my daughter... My nose is as big as a rhino's nose. Oh, so. man, tough crowd at the house. Tough crowd. That, that's one of her, it's one of her favorite things, things to nail me on. And she was worried that my nose was going to look too good after the surgery because she wouldn't, you know, she'd lose her main, main material to nail. Right. But I told her, no, the doctor said, the doctor said, the doctor said it'll look the same. She goes, good. <laughs> Man, that's her moneymaker right there, you know? That's her go-to material. She's got to make sure that that's still, that's still fully intact. You got the full schnoz going. Oh, yeah. Oh, and now, she not, let me know yesterday. So, Not to, not to bring this up and, and to be awkward here, but do you, do you believe in your own mind, all joking aside, that you have a big nose? Um. I think it got bigger as the years went by in wrestling. Right. Because every time it would get broke, there'd be more scar tissue building up. Good grief. And and plus, it's like what gave me the hump at the top of my nose, too. Right. So, and that's why I had to go get, the, finally I decided to get the surgery because I haven't breathed right since 98. Oh, my God. But uh, I checked into it back then, like around... 2000. Yeah. And they said, you may as well wait till you're done wrestling because if you get hit in the nose, it'll break whatever we fix. So I did. And then, uh, I, you know, I figured since I reached my out of pocket and everything with the hip replacement this year, I'd sneak it in before I had to quit my job. And absolutely. So it was all covered. With the new hip and the nose, man. But yeah, there was. You're a model now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe for Mugazi or whatever his name was. Oh, God. Oh, man. Through yet? Because I'm getting tired of holding this. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> you gotta hurry because I gotta pee. <gasps> All right. Well, hey, you've held out really well. I'm proud of you. Oh, it's getting close. <laughs> you, got the, you got the broadcaster blotter right now. 
Well, I drank a beer and a Gatorade, so. Damn. Well, when the weekend comes up, Jerry, I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of things you like to do. You like to get outside, enjoy that fall weather, right? What kind of things do you like to do on the weekend? I like to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're like Jerry Lynn and you'd like to do it, then I recommend you heading over to BlueChew.com. That's right, kids, BlueChew.com. It's going to help you in the bedroom to make sure that you have a long-lasting, enjoyable evening with your significant other. Right now, for all our listeners, if you head over to BlueChew.com, put in promo code ECW, you're going to get your first order for free. And what's better than free? And a huge erection? Nothing. All you got to do is pay $5 for the shipping and handling. It gets discreetly delivered over to you and your residence. You don't have to worry about any weird doctor visits or sitting in a lobby and kind of twiddling your thumbs wondering, oh no, is the nurse going to ask me a question? No. You answer a few questions online, it gets discreetly shipped to you. Great product. Remember, if you like sex and you like Jerry Lynn, all you got to do is get your blue chew. Remember guys, promo code ECW, chew it and do it. I think it moved. (laughs) Oh my God, I think it moved. Yeah, give me the big piece. I'll see you later. But yeah, I called you. You were uh, you were hanging up patio lights earlier today. Yeah, you know them uh, little round globe lights. Yeah, I was hanging up a few strings on the deck. Thought I'd try and make it. I want to make the backyard like a an oasis, a utopia. You know, where every time you step out the back door, it feels like you're on vacation. Oh wow, I like that idea. That's what I want to create. Yeah. A utopia. I like that. And you got the privacy fence up already? Well, it's not really a privacy fence. It's one of them black metal fences that you can see through. We figured if the dogs could see through it, they wouldn't bark as much. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because we had the wooden privacy fence at the old house. And we had in two places, both sides of the gate and the driveway, these little round windows that were like half half of a bubble. Okay. And they were called pet peaks Mm -hmm. so that they could see out. But, you know, when they could hear stuff on the other side of the fence on the parts of the yard without it, they would just bark at nothing. So we figured, well, if they can see, maybe they won't bark as much. Nope. Not going to happen. Well, since we moved, though, they've gone kind of nuts. And when we had the couple dog fights, the vet said that was normal when you changed your whole environment. So They fought with each other? I think they're slowly... Oh, yeah. The wow. two girls, I, I, they'd never fought. And they used to play together, and they had a couple fights. And the vet said that was normal it happened with her dogs when she moved that they're like reestablishing the alpha female of the group i guess in the new and new territory right so and now that we have the one neighbor has a couple dogs and so when those dogs are out in the backyard or when people are walking down the street walking their dogs our dogs are going nuts barking out jeez but they're getting better but it, it's gonna. It'll probably take a while. Sure, like anything. The, I mean, you know. But that's their job. That's their job. Let us know when you know when shit's going. Someone down. strange is coming around. That's right. 
Yeah. You don't want to. Uh, you don't want any shady rangers rolling up in your place. So it, the 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 metal fence is that the uh, is that the steel cage type of fencing? Uh, <laughs> I don't. No, not quite. <laughs> okay, because some of this, some of it is uh, just the. Uh, what is what is it like? I don't want to say galvanized steel or aluminum fencing, but then some of them. Ours is aluminum. But does it have like the black I mean, like rubberiness? Looks, yes, not the okay. rubberiness, but it's got a black coating. But it's it's uh, from this company called Premier Fence. Nice, and it's got a lifetime warranty as far as you know the the paint and everything like that. Okay, so it's it's a really good fence and a good company. We were gonna get one where the top of them, every other post had the little spikes on top. Right, and uh. But he said, he had mentioned, he said, well, he said he's seen where someone has come home and there's a deer impaled on the top of their oh, fence. Oh, geez. And I said, well, I don't want to come home and see that. So we got the ones where the, every other one does have the little spike, but there's a horizontal bar across it. So, it, you know, yeah, I didn't want to come home and see a poor deer impaled on my fence. Because we are kind of out in the wilderness. Yeah, you told me you're you're straight in the uh, what was that movie you quoted on the phone? Wrong turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I don't. <laughs> that, that just Great. screams, "Hey, come and visit." You know what I mean? I'm gonna stop by with Megan one time. We'll drop off a pie. Where are where exactly? Are we? Oh man, we're in wrong turn, man. Yeah. But we haven't run across a lot of wildlife, a lot of field mice. But we got. Two cats. The one cat's really wild, so she's outdoor. And then the other one's 19 years old. And he's, a few years ago, he kind of lost his mind and started peeing indoors. So he became an outdoor cat. So I don't know how you know, he's made it this long. We don't do that with old people. You know, they get old, they start getting mad, they start peeing everywhere. We don't put them outside. Animals, totally different story. Well, Thankfully, because I'm getting close. <laughs> That's all I need. All of a sudden, there'll be a couch outside for me or a futon. <laughs> Just like when Mikey was out there in the rain laying on the couch. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we probably should but, explain so we've got, why M Mikey's not here. Explain. Oh, yes, we should. We should. We should explain why Mikey's Didn't you not say, here. Uh, he had one of his kids had a sleepover tonight, and then tomorrow is soccer. Yes, yes. So he is uh, painting nails and braiding hair and um, watching and then, chick movies, and and tomorrow he's going to go play some soccer with his kids. So he is unavailable to join us for this week. So today is painting and braiding hair, painting nails. Paint, and that's right. <laughs> That's what he's going to be doing. And tomorrow's, a, and tomorrow's a soccer mom. Yep. That's Mikey for you driving the minivan. <laughs> oh, Girl Scout cookies are – that, season, <laughs> that season's coming up too again. You do know that, don't you? I know. Yeah, yep. it's coming back up again. So he's yep. going to be uh, – So – Wow. We'll hear some Diary of a Madman rants. Oh, my God. I'm going to buy some cookies from uh, from his daughter. I'm going to do that. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna support her and, and buy some cookies. Does your does your daughter do any of those campaigns for school? You know how they used to have in the eighties used to be like wrapping paper and oh god, what did they do? I mean, this is dating me. Do you remember what I'm talking that, about here? That stuff never sells. I oh. think they did that last year, one of them. And that stuff is no one. But we did, um, well, of course, the cookie dough. We just got done with the cookie dough and popcorn one. Oh, wow. And the popcorn is awesome. Well, the cookie dough is good, too. You got that stuff to stretch. But uh, we did, yeah, and we did some last two years in a row, the last couple of years. They're called butter braids. Oh, that sounds good. I've never, it's I've never like heard of a, that. It's a pastry, and I think they're made by a company in Iowa, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but they're awesome. You got to when you unpackage them, you got to set them out and let them uh, stand overnight, and they'll. It's like making the yeast rise before you throw them in the oven. Mm-hmm. And they're so good, but you can only get them through school fundraisers. You can't buy them direct from the company or anything. But uh, at work, uh, we went around, Pam hit up everyone in the office, and I hit up everyone in the warehouse. Between work and a few friends, we sold like 62 of them. Oh, my God. And, yeah, when we went to go pick it all up. And then it's got to be refrigerated, too, or frozen, really. It's got to be in the freezer. So we had had two freezers at home, and they were just packed. One was a small freezer, and, of course, the freezer above the fridge. But when we went and picked them up, the woman says, uh, do you work at the Nissan plant? Because <laughs> we, we sold so many. I'm like, no. Wow. I just threatened people with a steel folding chair. <laughs> but, it's that wrestling business acumen that you've acquired over the years. But that one, yeah. But that one was hard because they had to be frozen. So we had to deliver them in like a couple trips. So, and then once the ones we had to bring to work, we had to fill up the freezer in the lunchroom at work. Good grief. So you're yeah, so that one was kind of a little pain in the butt. Wow. wow. So is she going to do it again this year? Is she going to get the catalog where you got to sell a bunch of stuff or? Well, we already did the one with the, I don't, we usually try and keep it to one a year. Right. Now, doesn't band the sad have thing is they do fundraisers? Yeah, yep, Band had one too, and we did that one, and uh, I can't remember what the goods were, but they made some money, they made enough to buy a few instruments. So hey, you good. know what, it's good for the kids, do it for the kids. Yeah. Even if, yeah. Even if you don't want to consume the calories, It's sad it that away. you got to do it, that, you know, every, <laughs> here's what I've noticed, every time a state wants to have the lottery in their state legal it's like they promise so much money will go towards education and blah 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 well in minnesota that's what they promised and everything even after they passed it and got the lottery in minnesota and you could get lottery tickets and everything they were still right. shutting down schools and schools up their fundraisers and stuff it was like what is wrong with this picture wow yeah not cool not cool. and you're in the teaching industry so i Right, and you're in the teaching industry, so I assume you see how the budget goes. It's it's tough. There's a lot of uh, with the schools and a lot of the supplies. activities absolutely get get cut out, and uh, a lot of the extracurricular activities have to come out of the pockets of the parents of the students, and it's just it's sad. You 
With your daughter being in band, what instrument does she play? Clarinet. Nice. Nice. My wife plays yeah. clarinet. Did I already ask you this question? I think probably. Well, I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but even Pam played clarinet too. Wow. Small world. My wife played clarinet. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Nice. I don't play shit. I'm not talented at all. I'm not even going <laughs> to lie either. I wish I would have, but I I, th- I wish I would have because it would have been fun to be able to sit down and play something. If you were to. With her, you know. Oh, sure. If you were to have played an instrument, what would you have picked? I have no idea. You know, when I was younger, I wanted to play guitar. Okay. I told my dad, I want to learn how to play guitar. So he handed me his acoustic guitar and three books and said, here you go, learn. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I sat in my room for a few weeks trying to learn on my own. And I got past the point where my fingertips were killing me. But outside my bedroom window, I could hear everyone else out in the field playing ball. And I finally said, screw this. I'm going to go out and play ball. Sure. But your dad knew how to play, though, right? Not really. Just a few chords. Okay. It was a guitar that someone had him hold. I think they wanted to borrow some money, and they had him hold the guitar for, uh, what do you call it? Collateral? Uh, what's the word? Yes, collateral. And they never came back for the guitar. And I have the guitar still in the original oh, wow. case. And we brought it to a music store, and I forget what year. It was made in Michigan, and long, long time ago. So, By and Sabu's it's in pretty good uncle. shape. Yeah, very <laughs> <laughs> you really suck. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Someone asked me about the, uh, the Michigan thing. I said, well, it's sort of an inside joke. It's so fantastic. It's- say that. Everyone's going. What is going on? It's it's the it's the it's the gift that keeps but, uh, on giving. I love it. What like the herp? <laughs> wow, <laughs> like the herp. <laughs> I was gonna go with the clap, but I mean, hell, <laughs> the herp works too. Oh well. <laughs> so I'm going to take the guitar to this other place in downtown Nashville. And see what it's worth and see how much I can get for it. What brand is it, by the way? Uh, Gibson. Oh, wow. Yeah, you, you definitely have to do that. I can't remember. Have... The, it, was, it was built, I think, in the 60s. It was made in the 60s. You know what? I'm thinking. You know what you should do? You should take a few pictures of it and tweet it. I guarantee there's people out there who listen to the show who know music and could probably give you some history oh. on that thing. I never thought about that. Well, and I've got this whole printout. The guy, he wrote down the serial number and looked it up all on computer and printed it all out. So it has the city, state, the date, where it was made. So. Wow. Very But cool. I can't play it. And I'm sure someone who is a guitar aficionado would just love it. The guy at the music store was just frothing at the mouth. He was just. They got all excited to see it and was, and I told him, well, play something. So he started playing on it and it was, it sounded good. Now, if you autograph that guitar, then it's going to go up even higher. Really? A, no. a Jerry Lynn signed Gibson. I'm telling you. 
I mean, I just saw a pair of Jerry Lynn tights. How about if I get Eric Clapton to sign it? Are you friends with him? What? No. (laughs) You're not friends? (laughs) I'm just saying, someone like that, if they autographed it. I'm telling you, some hardcore ECW fans would go crazy over Jerry Lynn signed signed Gibson. Just saying, throwing it out there. Might want to take some bids on it. Um, All right. Did you see the tweet I I sent out about the uh, the ring worn Jerry Lynn pants when uh, or tights I should say when you won the title from uh, from Just Incredible? I think I did. That was a while ago, wasn't it? Well, I think I might have just recently retweeted it. Can you confirm, Jerry, that those were your pants? Yes, they were. Wow. Now, how would a person get a There's- pair of your pants like that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, because I've sold everything. I think the only thing I have left is the the uh, Jerry the Ram vest and tights. Wow. That's it. Oh, wait. I do have, I had like a, years and years ago when I first started, I wore some uh, long Bon Jovi type jacket. Black with these silver little round things and the black fringe hanging down and everything. I still have that jacket, too. Okay. So, I might, yeah, who knows, I might put those up for sale. Would you uh, Would you give a hometown discount to somebody <clears throat> you know? Of course. Of course Fantastic. I would. Fantastic. Uh, I, I, I just saw your pants and I thought, how in the hell did somebody get a pair of Jerry's pants? And then I remembered, Jerry went ahead and he said he sold a lot of his stuff. So, I know this, you know, this is going to sound you. funny. Yeah. They're not pants. They're tights. Tights. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Tights. Yes. Right. That sounds a little a little Isn't creepy when Right, yeah. Yeah. It's in it's so is there any other terms that uh that you have to say differently than you would normally say? So you never wore a singlet, did you? And a singlet is the uh the more of the Olympic style outfit, correct? Yeah, amateur wrestling. Yeah, gotcha. No, I, I wore that when I amateur wrestled, but I think I wore one one time in Japan when uh, another guy, Ricky Rice, we were, and Ricky Rice, uh, Sean, and I were doing like a, I think it was like a, a triple tournament okay. for a lucha group over in Japan, and I, he and I wore those. I just got a pair just to kind of match, but. It never, you know, I I wasn't comfortable wearing it, but so when you would when that was you about would, the only time when you would order your tights. I mean, what are we back in the day? What are we talking? I mean, because those were you would pick out the design, right? That wasn't just something that they happened to have. You picked out what you wanted it to look like. Well, I assume. Well, back years and years ago, it was hard to find someone who did make wrestling gear. So I was working with a guy. I'm trying to think. Where did I get my first stuff? I think I just bought... I'm trying to think. I can't even remember who made my first gear. But I was working with a guy who... His sister was a seamstress. Okay. And I asked... And so I he introduced me, and then she started making me some gear. But I would just pick out the fabric, and I would try and come up with something. So, if you can, back in the day, what would what would a pair of tights run, ballpark? 
Oh, Lord. It just depended on how elaborate you wanted it to be. Right. Because, you know, it depended on how long it took. And I would try and just buy the fabric myself. Okay. And then but, just uh, give somebody a concept of what you were looking for. Yeah. So it just depended on how long it took and how difficult it was. And, like, the Mr. JL outfit, that I... Well, we talked about this before. You even posted the <laughs> the pictures from their website. <laughs> you son of a... <laughs> God, um, I would buy that Mr. J outfit if it was still around. That is a badass I outfit. sold it to someone. I, don't, I, I can't remember who, but it's... And then the mask I sold. And then I had two different masks made with different colors, plus two different outfits made. Uh, JL outfits. One was like a tank top type top instead of just a sleeveless top right. that were different colors. And I can't... One of the masks, I was out just partying with a bunch of people and some fans, and some one fan asked me, said, can I have that mask? And I said, sure. And I just handed it to him. No, you didn't. Yeah. Uh, I know. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. I'm going to go on eBay and see if I can find a Mr. JL mask now. But that's the cool thing, though, you know, to have wrestling memorabilia that that people can't just get. You know what I mean? Right. But I also, um, I'm sure I talked about this before. I used to work at a screen printing shop called T-Shirt Inc. Okay. And one of the guys in the art department I got to be good friends with, I had him help. He actually designed the Mr. JL outfit. Wow. And then, you remember the tights you said you posted that I won the ECW title in? Yes, I do. He came up with that design, too. That was a cool design. Yeah. I told him I wanted... I had this little gothic cross thing. Mm-hmm. And I said I wanted this, you know, somehow put on tights and stuff. So he came up with this design. But the design was kind of elaborate. So I had to have it actually embroidered into the tights. Oh, wow. So they had to take, yeah, so they took, he wrote up, drew up the design and everything, and I brought it to a place, and they had to actually program it in, and they embroidered it right onto the tights. Because you couldn't just cut and paste and sew it on and all that. So it was actually embroidered in. Wow, I'm looking at them right now. It's not often you look at another man's tights, but here we do. (laughs) Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so is that is that logo above your and I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet this picture out. But yeah, it's above your ass, okay. I thought it was above your junk. Okay, I'm looking at the backside. Okay. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's looking. the backside. That's cool. Four fifty. Four hundred and fifty bucks plus seven dollars for shipping. Wow. That's what they're looking at they're looking for that. Or you can get it with your PayPal probably. credit card for $39 a month for 12 months. Probably because I'm older and I'm getting closer to death. Because everything. Okay, Mikey. Fantastic. <laughs> it's sort of like, no, it's like when an artist dies, all of a sudden his paintings become more valuable. Oh, my God. <laughs> so what? You'll the be, older I get, the more valuable it is. I was going to say, you'll, you'll be the Bob Ross of uh, wrestling tights at some point. Yeah. So it says they're I guess from. I should have had some with some happy trees yeah. on them. Huh? <laughs> some happy trees. It says it's from, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Seaverville, Tennessee. Mm. 
Am I Sevierville? Sevierville. Okay. Yeah. So that's where this individual has them. So interesting. I'm my trying to see. Daughter's creeping me out. She's peeking over my wall here at me with some weird serial killer look on her face. Did she enjoy being on the show? Oh my God. Huh? Oh, I don't know. Come here and say hi. Huh? Why? Why? So open it. There you go. Come on in. Huh? It's to try and keep the sound from bouncing around. In Mikey's gymnastic mat surrounding me. Mikey's not here, so we don't have to worry about. Uh, I was all paranoid after you said that the two girls were in the room. I had to keep it uh, keep it family friendly, keep it PG rated. <laughs> so Just what's going hi. on? What's going on in the Lynn residence this evening? Who wants to know what's going on in the Lynn residence this evening? What's going on? Uh, <laughs> not much. What are you doing? You playing? Oh, I was eating. No, I was eating ice cream. Oh. Ooh, ice cream. You're still playing huh? Roblox with your friends? What? She, no. pl- she plays Roblox no. with her friends. <laughs> now, what is Roadblock? Ro, R O B L O X is it? Oh. Roblox. Oh. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not mine. that. So she jumps back and forth between Minecraft no. and Roblox. No, you don't. Oh, I knew some Minecraft. What? You're people. looking at me like I'm. Uh oh. Am Dan- I ruining your reputation? No. Oh, okay. Why are you telling me no? Why are you giving me that look? Am I embarrassing you? Oh no. She says yes. I'm embarrassing her. Well, you got to straighten me out then. What? Oh, she's gonna go eat her ice cream. Well, she's sliding out of here. She's doing the she's doing the Irish goodbye and just sneaking out of here. She's taking a powder. Um. Yeah. So. Oh, hey, should we do an open? Yeah, we we should. I, I noticed someone asked that we didn't do an open last time. We didn't do an they open were, last they time. Kind of disappointed. I know. Yeah. I I didn't even realize I that, but I didn't. I don't want to let anybody. Yeah. Go. So, you know what? Well, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> that's your moneymaker right there. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Welcome to Front Row Material. My name is Mike Freeland, and this week I'm being joined by the ECW, Ring of Honor, WWE, WCW, Impact Wrestling, and now AEW Superstar, Mr. Jerry Lynn. I wouldn't say would, AEW superstar. Well, you well, you're a superstar. I, well, I'm just behind the scenes. But you're still a star. And and they like you for your mind now, so you don't feel cheap now walking around. Well, thank you. Yes, they care about what's well. between your ears. <laughs> I don't know. You and Mikey always make me feel cheap. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, when I get done with this show, I feel like a cheap hua. Like a hua. <laughs> <laughs> Without a coupon. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I met worse yet. Oh, Actually, it'd probably be worse with a coupon. That's, wouldn't that's it? right. You'd be a discounted whore. According to Mikey. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, boy. A book is our window to another world, exposing you to anything your mind can hold. Another life different time it could build you up 
break you, make you weak in all the right ways. But reading together as a community, as friends and family, now that'll teach you things you never knew. How to see through someone else's eyes. It's our chance to create a conversation together. A way to know that we're not alone. To question who and what we are. And even what we may yet be. The only thing we won't be is the same. Read with us. It's happening! Well... We didn't get a chance to talk about it last week, and a couple people hit me up with a DM, Jerry, and they asked the question. They said, what about this book club? So I, uh, I've got some notes here on chapter one of the book, and I want to go over some things with you and get your Which book opinions. is it? Uh, Which book is it? It's not the one with, uh, with Taz on the cover. What about Sabu's book? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's really good. That's a Mikey freakout moment. Oh, I've never heard his voice go that many octaves higher. It did. It almost sounded like his Mickey Mouse impersonation. Mm. I forgot about the Mickey Mouse. That's probably the highest. That and Paul Stanley. Hey, Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? How you doing, buddy? Um, It's it's hardcore history. The extremely unauthorized story of ECW, written by Scott E. Williams, and I was doing a little bit of research here on on Scott himself. Scott is uh, is no longer with us, and um, that, what? That's a bummer. Yeah, I was was reading here, and, and Scott uh, Scott had passed away several years ago, and uh, an accomplished writer had worked on many many books here, and uh, yeah, that's that's a shame. That's a shame, but we are going to we're well, gonna we're gonna do him well. How long? What year was the book done? I want to say was the book in 07? Okay, I want to say it was oh seven. <clears throat> wow, that's that's twelve years ago. That's a long time. Copyright well, two thousand six slash two thousand seven. Yeah, ECW's already almost what twenty years ago. Isn't that insane? How long ago that was? It's crazy. Wow, yeah, time flies when you're not getting paid. It sure um, does. <laughs> so when you when you start the book here, uh, Shane Douglas does a, a great forward on it, um, and I definitely recommend everybody taking a look at that. But chapter one is uh, entitled Tri-State Wrestling Alliance and Joel Goodhart. So before I kind of go into this, Jerry, let me ask you this question. Had you ever worked with Joel? Um had you ever worked any of his shows or? I don't think so. Had you had you known Not anybody who worked Joel's shows? Probably, but I probably didn't realize it at the time. Because during, during, what, 1990, you were in Global and you were doing some stuff in Japan as well. Is that correct? No, 90... 19, over the winter of 90 and 91, I was doing uh, USWA, Memphis. USWA, okay. And you went into global when? Uh, the next winter. Okay. 91 so and 91. 92. 91, 92, okay. How many tours of Japan did you do during that time between global and uh, USWA? Um, I didn't start going, I think, until 92. 
okay. after Global. And then I did uh, I did seven tours for that, what was that, that Lucha style? Was it UWF or something like that? Okay. And then I did three tours for Michinoku, and I did a tour for New Japan and a tour for Zero One. Any FMW at all? No? Oh, actually, when I was doing that, was it Mitch? I'm trying to think which one. It was either, you. Nah, maybe it was Michinoku. UWF or Michinoku, we did two combined shows with UWF, and that's where I first wrestled Sabu in Japan. Wow, okay. So, just kind of a generalized question here. How does, so you're working in, in Memphis and then obviously you did some stuff in global, but when, how does somebody reach out to you and say, Hey, we want you to come over to Japan. How has that conversation started? Um, there was a referee in Minneapolis. His name is Bruce Kreitzman. And he was going over to Japan, the ref. Well, he told Wally Yamaguchi about us who, I don't know if he, if he was just a referee or if he was booking or what he was doing over there, but he, he actually flew to the States to ref a match between me and Sean. And he liked what he saw, so he went back and told him, and they brought us over. Wow. So, when- And they mainly brought us over in that Lucha company to as a tag team. And in the States, we were like mortal enemies. Right. But they brought us over as a tag to have a feud with their Japanese tag team. Uh, uh, what was their names uh, at the time? Takayama and Akiyoshi, but they're, they're now they're Jado and Gato. Okay. So you, you get over there and who is the, are you the one who negotiates how much you're going to get, or do they just make you an offer and say, this is what we want to offer you? How does that work? At that time, I'm sure, I mean, for me, I don't, you know, Sean worked out, you know, we didn't talk about it or anything. We worked out our own deals, but it was pretty much, I'm sure we both took whatever they offered. Okay. Because, you know, it was one of our goals to get over there, so. Sure. So working in Japan, obviously, how would you compare that? And a lot of people have said working in Japan is different than working in the States because it's more, in some ways, more theatrical. Um, storyline driven over here than it is over there at that time. Would you agree with that? Because a lot of times people who I've talked to said it was looked more as as a competitive sport. It was looked more like a sporting event. Well, this was a lucha style company, so it wasn't the same as New Japan or All Japan. So this was just, we were fortunate that we got to work with a lot of the top lucha stars, like legends in the business, like uh, the Vianos and Los Brazos and uh, um, Silver King and Tejano and uh, uh, Dos Cadas. And we were actually, when we did the, the six-man tag tournament, we were the first Americans that uh, El Hijo del Santo worked with. So we were very fortunate. We got to work with just legends in Mexico. But it was different. It was just, it was the lucha style. It wasn't like, you know, the Japanese strong style, like in New Japan or All Japan. Would you say, as far as communicating, were you more, and even today, are you more fluent or maybe fluent's not a good word, but 
Are you a better communicator with Japanese wrestlers who might not be so strong with their English or more Mexican wrestlers? Neither. It just depended on most wrestlers around the world know the English names to moves. Mm-hmm. And if if you didn't, you just kind of walk through it in the back. So it wasn't something that you necessarily had issues with, the language barrier. It was kind of wrestling kind of has its own universal understanding of what is going to happen. Most of the time. There are some that were the, there is a language barrier, but you just kind of walk through it. Now, weren't you saying that in AEW, Kenny Omega actually does a lot of speaking with some of the other talent from – because he speaks very fluent Japanese. Am I correct in that? Yes. Cause I, I, I don't even know. I haven't talked to him about – I'm sure he's lived over in Japan because he's – you know, his a lot of his career was over there. But yeah, he speaks pretty fluent. He speaks fluent Japanese. Well, just want to kind of go over that with you and just kind of get your your take on this, because this first chapter is very, very interesting. Um, Chapter one, as far as the ECW story goes, it all started in Philadelphia uh, with the rabid, bloodthirsty fans that were in the city of brotherly love. Now, Jerry, you knew ECW pretty well, and we all know that those fans were, uh, they were pretty cutthroat, but they knew what they liked, and... Did you also find that the fans in, in ECW, and we might have talked about this once before, but were much different than the fans in like WCW or in the WWF? Oh, yeah. They're, well, I think the fans in Philadelphia for any sport period are very passionate about their teams. Uh, so that's just the way the people are in Philadelphia. They're passionate about you know, it could be the Phillies, you know, the Flyers, and, you know, it doesn't matter. They just go all out. But, yeah, especially the wrestling fans. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> well, ECW. And thank God for them. We need, we need all the fans like that we can get. Well, they cemented the reputation as one of the most vicious cities in the United States. In fact, in 1968, they even booed Santa Claus by hitting uh, him with snowballs and laced profanity inside Veterans Stadium. So wrestling fans were kind of cut from that same cloth as it pertains to just their passion and their fervent energy regarding anything that was in Philadelphia. So we, we've right. talked about this before. Tri-State Wrestling Alliance. When was, uh, I mean, obviously you heard of TWA, correct? When Not you really. were, when you, okay, I guess it was, was fairly <coughs> local inside that area. And it was run by Joel Goodhart. And it was an independent promotion uh, that uh, that kind of rose out of things in 1990. And the, the way it got the name with Tri-State was it was Pennsylvania, New Jersey, in Delaware. Well, it quickly got a lot of hardcore fans following it. Uh, they ran uh, quarterly shows, and it was it was kind of gory. That's how they kind of got the the beginnings of what would become extreme. Um, Joel's shows were loaded with huge superstar names, but the problem with the early stages I've read here about the Tri State Wrestling Alliance was it wasn't very profitable. 
Let me ask you this question. When it comes to a lot of independent promotions, is it rare to find one that is profitable or very successful, or do you think a lot of them run in the red? Well, back then, you know, times were different. Back then, before I went anywhere, I got a lot of work with Ed Sharkey and a few other local promoters, but most of the time, they would get bought shows. So it wasn't a big gamble on the gate, on hoping if you're going to draw a lot of people or not. You got from whoever wanted to have a wrestling show, they would pay you to put on that show, and it was up to them to uh, push the ticket sales and everything. So we all, you already you pretty much knew you were going to get paid. So it was a different time back then. Were bot shows a pretty common thing, or was it just depending on what area oh, the yeah. you were in? No, well, I don't know. You know, in the Midwest, like Eddie, he most of the time it was always bot shows. He wouldn't, he didn't want to gamble and take a chance of losing. He was all about making money. So it would always, you'd try and get, you know, a school or um, different uh, fundraising organizations. I'm trying to think of the name of one of them that they did a lot. I can't remember the name now. Like the Boys uh, and Girls Clubs or? Yeah, stuff like that. You know, they would, you know, you try and plug your wrestling company to them and see if they would want to do a fundraiser and you tell them all right this is how much we we need to run the show and if you really push the sales you can make some good money the sales on you know the ticket sales so let's say they would i'm just throwing a fictitious figure out there let's say you charged eight thousand dollars to run a show they would mm-hmm. give you that eight thousand. You'd run the show, but it's up to them to go and push ticket sales. Right. So at least the promoter and all the wrestlers, you're, you knew ahead of time what you were making. So it wasn't a situation of I'm going to show up and but work, and then some, at the end of the night, what am I going to get? Well, there were certain nights like that, like uh, when we were running this once a month bar show. When was it? It used to be George's and Fridley, and then it became a country bar, and they called it Ropers. But we would run that once a month. And obviously, a bar show with a bar that only holds, I don't know how many it held, two, 300 people, you're not going to get a huge guarantee. So it was that was a gamble. You know, you didn't know what you're going to make. And then, you know, I'm sure it depended on how much Eddie wanted to keep in his boot. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have that wad of cash in his boot. But uh So let's so say back in the nineties. I guess it's it's fair to say some guys could be making anywhere from twenty five to maybe one twenty five. Would it, I did a lot of research and that seems to be not out of the question for what somebody would make. Well we were I guess I was fortunate. I usually was knew I was gonna get a hundred dollars. Okay. Except for that bar show. <laughs> so I never knew. <laughs> the first time I broke an ankle was at that bar show, and Jeez. I got paid forty. I got paid forty bucks, and I had an eight hundred and forty dollar medical bill. Wow! So that was a big loss. Jeez. Well, 
Goodhart shows were loaded with some top talents from all the independent uh, wrestling associations all over, which unfortunately the way Joel did business made things very, uh, very difficult. For example, his March 2nd show in 1991 drew 1,735 fans for a gate of $32,629. Now, that wasn't too terribly bad back in 91. Would you agree with that? No. Especially for but an that, indie show. Right, but that all depends on how much you're paying each guy, though. Plus, if you're, you know, how many you had to pay to fly in, hotel rooms... So well, the main you know, event that can eat up eat up a lot of it fast. The main event for that was Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. In this is this is what blew my mind. In a fans acted like lumberjacks match. Had you ever heard of a situation before where the fans were lumberjacks, where they were were actually yes. touching the wrestlers was considered okay? Yes, when I was in Memphis. So how would and how would something like that go down? I forgot who the angle was with, but one of the wrestlers couldn't make it, and they got poor downtown Bruno to take his place. And he, boy, I'll tell you what, he was a team player. He took it like a champ. And get this, all the lumberjacks, all the people outside the ring had belts or leather straps. And he ran around that ring a couple times and got the... Oh, got the dickens whipped out of him. But he wow. took it like a champ. Yeah. That show itself also featured a match between Cactus Jack and Eddie Gilbert, whose feud became famous with hardcore fans. Other wrestlers on the card, Ivan Koloff, The Sheik, Abdul the Butcher, and Manny Fernandez, each that came with a heavy price tag. So when, when you're bringing in guys like Koloff, The Sheik, Abby, Manny Fernandez, that uh, that thirty two hundred bucks or thirty two thousand, I should say, is is going to get cut into. I mean, I don't oh, know yeah, what these time. guys might might have been asking back in nineteen ninety one, but I mean, for let's say for example, seven hundred bucks, a guy may want seven fifty, but then you got to take in consideration their travel and their hotel as well. So, right? Wow, wow. And then um, you don't know. How much the building costs to rent. And then hopefully well, you owned your own ring and didn't have to rent a ring. There's a lot of things that come into play when it comes to putting on a show that I think the average fan just doesn't take into consideration. Um, that and is there a commission in that state? Because then the commission will make you have, well, they'll have their commission doctor show up. So you got to pay him. And some commissions will make you have an ambulance and paramedics on the during there during the show. So there's a lot of different things in different states, which I I don't blame them for having medical staff there. I think that in itself is is smart. Would you agree? Well, it's smart, but it's still going to cost know, you money. A lot of times, oh yeah. Then in states where you have a commission, you have to have a promoter's license. Jeez. Seems like it never and stops, does it? Every wrestler on the show has to have a license to wrestle on that state. So there's a lot that goes into. I think I've thought three times in my entire career about running a show, and I'll bet you I don't even get halfway through the list of things you got to worry about. And I'm like, forget it. Wow. 
Well, as it was written here in chapter one, a, a fan, Bob Barnett, said uh, he's a California attorney. He was going to go to Goodard's uh, March 2nd, 1991 show. So he was flying cross-country as a fan from California to Philadelphia. So on that card, as I mentioned before, the sheik was taken on Abdul the Butcher. Okay, So Barnett says, and this is a quote, Once I got to the hotel in Philadelphia, the sheik was there in the hotel lobby and made him an offer, which sounded more like an order. He said he was going to follow him to the arena, and if I got him lost, he was going to cut me. The threat might have sounded Wait. idle. However, the sheik was notorious for uh, taping razor blades to his fingers to use on fans Wait, who this? tried to touch him. Which sheik was this? Sabu's uncle? Yes. Yeah. So a fan checks into his hotel in Philly, flies cross country, and he's in the lobby. And the sheik comes up to him and says, hey, let me tell you something. I'm going to follow you to the building. Does that sound like something somebody would do? Or does that sound like it's just kind of... The, uh, what sounded like something he would do was the, I'll cut you. Because when I first met him in Japan at Narita Airport. Okay. And Sean and I were talking to him. And I don't know what the topic of the conversation was or anything, but he flat out said, if someone didn't want to get color, he'd cut them. And I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. I was like, all right, I'm scared of this guy. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, obviously that's not going to fly nowadays. Did, did you think looking back at something like that, like that was kind of unheard of? Or did, would you have known other people who would have done that? Or was was color something that would had been agreed upon before – Somebody actually did that, especially for someone else to get color on you. I, I don't know. You never know with him or with Abby, you know. So they they may, just they may it do it without themselves. asking. Oh, jeez. I don't know. That's scary. Yeah. Wow. Because one false slip. Mm. Wow. Right. And you know, I wouldn't want anyone to cut me. And. And, you know, I've heard of guys that I don't know if they've never done it before, if they weren't good at it, or if they were apprehensive, where they would ask the other person to cut them for them. Well, mm -hmm. I would never do that because, right. like you said, what if you slipped or what if there's a slip up? And I've seen plenty of times where guys did it to themselves and cut an artery and now you got a something shooting out of their head like a sprinkler. You got mass So transit. at least if I did it. You know, at least if I did it to myself, I've only got myself to blame. I can't blame someone else. And in all reality, if you ask someone else to do it to you, you're taking that chance anyway. And, you know, I wouldn't want someone to give me a lobotomy either. <laughs> Had you ever heard of anybody saying even if someone didn't want color, they would cut them anyway prior to that conversation with the sheik? No. Yeah, I would be taken back by that. That would yeah, that was. would take me that. Wow. Well, kind of continuing with the story. So, our buddy, our buddy Bob here from California decides to go ahead and let them follow. But guess who was driving the Sheik's car? His nephew. Oh no. Who? His nephew Sabu. <laughs> really? 
So that's the first introduction we get to Sabu in the book. He was the one driving the car. Wow. That's that's insane. Driving the car, this is, is written in the book here. Driving the car was the Sheik's nephew, whom hardcore fans would soon come to know as Sabu, uh, who was groundbreaking in the wrestling scene. Goodhart went to Tri-State Wrestling. Fans loved their enthusiasm by putting together quality shows but had no clue of how running a wrestling company. Some of the b- big names would even inflate their asking price when Goodhart, Goodhart would ask them, according to the rumor mill. So I'm sure you've heard this kind of talk before in the locker room. Hey, this guy's a sucker. Or I know I can get this kind of money out of somebody. Not to say you would do that. Have you heard that kind of talk before? Would people say, hey, there's this promoter. I know I can milk X amount of dollars out of him. Yeah, I've heard certain people say that. Then there were certain people who had the reputation of, you know, they'll tell a promoter so much. And then when they get to the show, they'll hold them up for more. After the guys advertised them and, you know. They're on posters and blah, blah, blah. And then when they get to the show, they hold them up for some more, which is Have you been on a business. show where that's happened? Yeah, yeah. Without naming names, how awkward does that make that when, you, when you're in the back and you guys are trying to, to do a show? I'm sure that brings some level of tension to the locker room, yeah? Well, it just makes me wonder, you know. Uh, I hope I get paid, and this guy's not caught shelling out all this money to this guy, and it's eating into my pay. I could easily see where, where fights could break out if something like that were to happen. Easily. Because like you said before, now that's cutting into other people's money. Well, possibly. Depending on if the guy, the promoter, end up you know, going right. through with it. But I never Have understood you- that mentality. Because you know you're not going to be brought back to work for him again. Well, that's the point. And I mean, think, you're basically burning the bridge. Well, yeah, it's ignorant. You're just worried about screwing someone out of a, a little extra money when wouldn't you rather have repeat business? But some people are like that. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Well, with situations like that, things quickly fell apart for Goodhart and Tri-State Wrestling. With the increased frequency of promoting stars who chose not to appear and that's like you said before that's the other thing some people who might be booked have you ran into situations before where you come into the building on an independent show and you know who's supposed to be there and then you find out someone's no-showed yeah and that usually means they got a better offer somewhere else and there was some guys who had reputations for that too for getting double bookings or, you know, like if they already have a booking and someone else calls up and they can get a better price, they won't even tell the first guy and just take the second one. That's just, which, wow. yeah. So once again, that's, shitty, that's bad business. In my opinion. It, it is. is. It is. How prevalent would you say that was? Where people I mean, would take a booking, few. get a better one. There were a few. I, I guess years and years ago, there was quite a few that had that reputation. That leaves a bad taste in your mouth too, doesn't it? Especially when, you know, you're doing everything you can right now. And then it, it just gives the other wrestlers kind of a, it gives them a bad image. You know, the promoter probably wonders now, are, how often is this going to happen to me? Hmm. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I don't know. It It, it just... 
amazed me how those people would still get bookings, though. You'd think word would get around, and but I don't know. Well, one of Joel's run-ins happened with Missy Hyatt. Uh, Joel and Missy got into a shouting match at a tri-state event on May 4th of 91 because Joel actually was making money by selling pictures of Missy at the show without her knowledge. So the guy's booking people. They're not showing. He's promoting them. And he's bringing in stars who are gouging him for money here. So it to me, it just seems like it, it's one misstep after another misstep with this guy as far as it's just as the business is concerned, not his passion, but it just it just seems like he was not well versed in this before he got into it. Would that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sounds like uh, either he didn't know what he was doing or he's just. Well, it could have been a little bit of both trying to scam people, too, because not only are some of the wrestlers shady, there's a lot of shady promoters, too. Oh, I agree with that. Have you ever heard of a promoter selling merchandise of a wrestler and then not obviously having their consent? I think so, yeah. Wow. Well, on that same show... Um, you know what's funny? Pe- <laughs> <laughs> uh, Buck Zumoff, he used to run his shows. His own shows, Rock and Roll Buck Zumoff. But it, what's funny is he would sell these keychains, the ones you could put pictures in. They're just the clear keychains, right. and you just put your own picture in. Well, on one side would be a picture of him. On the other side would be Hulk Hogan. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I guarantee he had the Hulk Hogan face facing up for people to purchase. <laughs> Probably. Wow, and then his his way out of it was I'm selling keychains that have my picture on them. Jeez, old Pete's. Yeah, baby. Just just thinking about this in in '91. This is the guys he had on the show: Eddie Gilbert, Abdul the Butcher, Bam Bam Bigelow, Buddy Landell, and Terry Funk. So that's a that's a pretty damn healthy show and and he had been known for putting on some pretty big shows but you know guess what they only drew 300 people so when it comes to well, a show you know obviously I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off no you're fine is that oh I well, guess, I guess just from a fan's perspective you got that kind of star power and you're drawing 300 people I mean obviously it, it, you got to let people know that there's a show there. You have to promote. You got to promote. And yes. When the internet came around and Facebook came around, there's so many indie promoters who think just advertising on their Facebook is promoting. It's not. You no. you, you got, you know, you could have The Rock or Stone Cold on your show. If you don't let people know that your show is on, there's not going to show. You can't just you could throw on the biggest name on the planet. If no one knows there's a show on, they will not be there. It's as simple as that. And you got so many people who think just advertising on their Facebook or whatever is promoting. You still got to do the footwork. You still got to paper the town. You got to put up posters in convenience stores, wherever you keep, wherever they'll let you. You got to hand out flyers. You got to, if you want to draw a big house and if you can afford it, do some radio ads. I mean, you got to. Promote. 
Otherwise, no one will show. It's as simple as that. And I've worked so many indie shows in front of 35 people because the promoter, the promoter will just advertise on his Facebook and say he promoted. And then you have to also take into consideration what other events are going on in town. You know, and not just something big at the arena like the, the you know, baseball team or the professional, the NFL team or whatever, or a, a huge concert going on in town. I've worked a show in Alabama. A friend of mine and I went and we stopped to grab something to eat at the town, the town that was right next to where the venue was going to be. And it was on, in some obscure community center on top of this mountain. And there was a big, everyone, all these kids all over the place in tuxedos and girls and dresses. So there was either a big homecoming or something going on in town, the prom or whatever, or there was a big deal going on in town. And when we show up, he says, at the end of the night, I thought you guys would draw better. Well, it's like, did you pay attention to what's going on in town? And well, did you even advertise? Well, but, you know. But that's a question. How much of that, how much do promoters put on the talent themselves to start letting, putting the word out? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where a promoter wants some of the talent to also go ahead and promote as well? Is that something that's part of it? Or is that oh, not necessarily? I've had, some, a, I've had some ask me if I'll do a radio interview and stuff, and I'll do it. You know, hey, if you want me to to help promote the show or whatever, just to, to do an interview or something, I'll, I'll do it. But uh, you still got to do your part. And like I said, you can advertise, but you still got to check and make sure you're not going up against all kinds of other things going on in town. So there, there's a lot to run in a show. You can't just... So you got to be smart you know, with scheduling. You got to... Yeah, you got to you gotta do your homework, see what else, what you're going up against. And you do, there's a lot of things you don't want to go up against. You know, and then it may be the playoffs. You know, if you're in a town where your major league team is in the playoffs, you don't want to run a show that night. Everyone's going to be at home or sitting in a or at the arena or in a sports bar watching the game or something. So you got to really do your homework. On the September 21st show in 91, uh, Goodhart drew 1,500 fans for a gate of almost $28,000, which once again was a good gate. Unfortunately, a lot of his costs have been soaked up by the building itself and the talent. So it seemed like there was a lot of things that Goodhart was doing well as far as getting the right talent in. Granted, they show up. But the business was just was just not there. There's too much going out the door and not coming in. But during that time, there was uh, remember that driver we were talking about before. He was yep. now featured on the tri-state wrestling, and that was Sabu. Do you remember when was your first time that you heard about Sabu? And I, you might have said this before. When was the first time? Oh gosh. I'm not even sure. Now, it was obviously before you got to ECW, correct? Oh, yeah. It was probably when uh, Eddie and Dennis Carluzzo did a couple combined shows, and they brought in Sabu to work with Sean, and I worked with Candido. I think that was the first time I met Sabu. 
What was Sabu back like I, back uh, in the day? He was very intense. And <clears throat> it he was very intense and very I guess kind of quiet. It's like he had a, you know, he was lived the gimmick constantly. And I and I may have heard of him before then because I knew he did all these barbed wire matches and exploding barbed wire in Japan and stuff. And so when I saw him in the locker room, I actually walked up to him and I said, uh, I said, can I just stare at your scars for a minute and get it out of my system? Because <laughs> he had all these scars on, all over. I mean, even eight, ten inch long scars across his stomach and stuff. And I was wow. just like. I'd never seen anything like it before. But he was cool with it. He said, sure. Wow. Well, it wasn't shortly after that that uh, another guy started showing up backstage at the Tri-State events. And that was a Sandman. But even back then, everyone was referring to him as Hack. Uh, Terry Funk said Yo. that uh, he has a, he's got a lot of respect for the Sandman for the way he was able to reinvent himself. Because uh, when he started there, was he doing the surfer gimmick? He was. He was or doing. Was the, that in ECW? He, I well, wasn't sure. I think it was right as Tri-State was probably going out before ECW actually ended up starting. He was doing the bleach blonde surfer thing, and okay. a lot of people were thinking it was a knockoff of Sting, who was a top WCW babyface at the time. He had bright tights, colors, and he had the guitar music, and the ring announcer actually announced him as, this is Sandman. But that didn't work too well with his thick Philadelphia accent. People quickly realized that this guy was not like Hogan and Sting. He was definitely not from Venice Beach. No, he didn't sound like a surfer at all. When it comes to your early gimmicks. And, and I think in prior episodes, we talked about this, but you go out there with it, with an idea or a concept of what you want to do. Right. And you give it some time and you see if it, if it takes off, if not, you go back to the drawing board. I never could come you, up with a weird, wacky gimmick for myself. I, I couldn't think of one. So I would just always just, I was just a, I don't know, babyface wrestler. And there was a, <laughs> I probably told you this already. I was at a show out in East Tennessee and a guy comes up to me. He didn't know who I was or anything. And he says, uh, so, so what's your gimmick? And I go, I, uh, I wrestle. He says, no, really? What's your gimmick? I said, I don't have a gimmick really. I just go out and I wrestle. So. After I came back from my match, someone must have told him who I was, and he's like apologizing. I'm sorry, I didn't know who you were, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't care. I said, I just don't have a weird, wacky gimmick. I could never come up with one. Have you ever had any gimmicks have been thrown at your way? Like, hey, Jerry, have you ever considered X, Y, or Z? Anybody approach you and say, I think this would work for you? No. I did one time in WWF at the time on Saturday Night Live. Will Farrell and what's her name? Sherry O'Terry were doing the uh, cheerleading skits. Yes, yes. And I wanted to do a gimmick like that. I told Al Snow about it. He says, Well, tell him. And I didn't say anything because first I I was I was trying to think of who could do play the girl. 
And the only person I could think of who could do it would be Ivory. Because she was so spunky and had that personality and very energetic. Right. And I mentioned it to her, and she wasn't interested. So I never brought it up to the office or anything. But then later on, they came out somehow with the spirit squad. But Interesting how I that thought, all happened. I thought it would have. I thought it would have been fun to do the the Spartan thing with with uh, Ivory, though. No, I think it would have been a great idea. Yeah, I would. I would so, even cut my hair and everything. But wow, it, you know, I, I could. If she would have said yes, I would have done it. But it never came to fruition. You never thought about approaching anybody else and asking them. No, no one else. I think could. I don't think any other of the girls there at the time could have done it. I think only Ivory could have pulled it off when it comes to gimmicks in in maybe reinventing yourself and we've seen a lot of wrestlers do it over the years but would you say in this specific context the sandman's reinvention of himself was probably one of the best oh yeah and it, the reason it was I br- so over the reason i bring that up is because i was trying to look back and think jerry how many people that when I started watching, they had this gimmick, and it didn't work or wasn't getting over. And then they changed, and it just took off like wildfire. And I really can't think of – I mean, Stunning Steve Austin, I don't know if well, I necessarily yeah. want to think he was – I liked what he did as Stunning Steve, but obviously when he transformed – because the ringmaster, you would agree, that that didn't work. But when he no. changed into Stone Cold, then it just completely took off. Right. Same as uh, The Rock. When he first started, didn't he just start as, uh, what did he start as? Just his name? Maggie Maya Via. Yeah. yeah. And fans he hated Pineapple him. haircut. Hated, hated the gimmick, hated him. And when he changed, Rocky boy, sucks. it took off. It did. So there's a few... Ne- do you feel like, and, and a lot of people have said this, and I think Mikey's even said this before, it, it's really who you are as a person just dialed way up. So, Well, I said that. Said, Mikey didn't agree with me. <laughs> he said, I don't. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I really think that it, so I'm stealing know, it your has thunder to be here. kind of a part of you in it. No, no, no. Well, I okay, think so for then, it to be believable and stuff, but. Well, then why even piddle around with trying to come up with a gimmick? Why don't you just be you? Meaning, sit down, try to figure out, you know, well, this is what I'm, this is my personality, this is how I act, this is how I behave, et cetera, et cetera, and just go with that. Do you think some people might just not be confident enough in themselves? That, or maybe they're, uh, well, I've, I've, I've seen a lot that are shy. Okay. Too shy to let loose. And then, you know, it just depends on each person. That kind of blows me away, too. The word shy in wrestling. I mean, I, I mean, was. I, when I, I first started, I couldn't even look at the fans. I would just concentrate see, on my opponent. I, I mean, the whole concept that you're out there in front of a large audience and you're performing, you would think that in itself would deter somebody who might be shy or apprehensive to be looked at. But it wasn't that. It was just the fact that you didn't want to make any type of eye contact with people. Right. Wow. Interesting. 
Interesting. But I wish someone would have woke me up earlier and said, hey, this is showbiz. You can't be shy. Let loose. Right. Have some fun with it. Why not? Yeah. So Sandman would ultimately uh, turn into the blue-collar ass-kicker who drank beer on his way to the ring. And even to this day, Jerry, you would have to agree that his entrance, it gives you goosebumps when you watch it back on the network. I mean, it was just one of those. And I believe Sandman did an interview when he said he was trying to think of a way that he could do something that hadn't been done before. Everyone would come down the aisle. He decided to come out of different parts of the crowd. How innovative was it for him to do that at that time? Oh, it is very. And that way it's even more engaging with the fans and you're making the fans part of your entrance. And so I think it even built a, you know, a great connection between him and the fans. Kind of on a side note here, let me ask you this. How important do you think your entrance is? I mean, to me personally, I think it, it's huge because it's, you know, it's the, the beginning of your entire presentation until the end of the match. How much do you put emphasis on the way you walk, you know, whether or not you jaw with the crowd? What type of music do you have? I mean, all of that in itself is part of the whole package deal. Do you how much effort and time did you put into that as far as did you pick your own music? Did you decide what you were going to do when you came out through the curtain? So how does that all kind of manifest itself in the process? Well, um, your ring entrance is very important. Like first and foremost, I was taught you should always assume there are people out there who have no idea who you are. And the minute you step through that curtain, you let them know who you are. Are you a good guy? Are you a bad guy? You know, uh, and and also your persona portrays that to them too. So it's not just, you know, it, it's your body language. And then, like you said, it's the music. You want music that's going to really uh, wake them up and, and grab their attention too. And then also... Your ring attire, that's changed over the years. It never was, you know, years ago, the ring attire was pretty boring. But now you, it's changed because, you know, it's all TV now. But it, so you want to come up with something that's going to grab people's attention. So, yeah, you want your ring entrance. You don't want it to be, okay, time to go get some popcorn and a Coke. You, you want it to grab everyone's attention. And as far as music, I, I would try and have something that had a very short beginning and, and then all of a sudden, boom, it would kick in. Like years ago, I would use Kickstart My Heart by Motley Crue because it was a very short open, but it was very recognizable. And then when that riff kicked in, I mean, I still get goosebumps when I think about it and you feel it going to the ring. So you want to, you know, pick something like that, too, that's going to really kick in and get people in a party mood. So with working with talent now, you know, and, and you're, you're backstage and you're working with them and, you know, the psychology we've always, always heard about is, is a big thing. Do you think in some ways if people don't respond to when you come out, that gets in your head and that can kind of get you off on the wrong foot? Have you ever seen people who are just, you know, a bundle of nerves, they try to go out there, do their entrance they don't get the reaction they were hoping for, and that then subsequently kind of uh, 
follows them throughout the match. They just once they they get off on a wrong foot, it just it's downhill from there. Well, it's up to you to get them involved. So I've seen people when they go and do their ring entrance, you can tell they're kind of not just not giving it their all and just kind of um, going through the motions and whatever. It's like if you're not excited, why should they be excited? You know, and that's if so, you're a baby face, you know, and if you're and as a heel, when you go, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw Mike Bennett in Ring of Honor. He didn't say a word, but just with his mannerisms and his facial expressions, by the time he got in that ring, he had the whole place booing him. So it's up to you to get the people engaged and involved, and depending on who you are and what you want them to do. So when you were coming through the aisle, obviously, you know, you're known for your, your hand gestures and everything. And you, w- would you say anything? I mean, obviously the music is playing pretty loud. Would you interact with the, uh, with the fans? I know you like to slap hands a lot because you were a baby yeah. face, but do you feel like, do you feel like that worked with you? Because it, it, everything's different for everybody, but do you feel like that worked well? Well, yeah, because I, I was just, you know. I came out to some good metal and everyone knew I was a metal head and I just wanted to go out with some good energy and just high five everyone and make them part of my entrance and get in the ring and all right, let's go. And I tried not to uh, do too long of an entrance because I wanted, depending, I wanted more time for my match. Well, that So I really didn't point. milk my entrance very long. That brings up a good point. So when... When they tell you, let's say it's you and you and Sean Walker, RVD, because <laughs> RVD had well, let's go, oh, let's go there then, let's so, go there then. <laughs> no, like I knew Rob was going to have a long ring entrance, so I would get my butt to the ring as fast as I could because I wanted to save some time for the match. So when they go Which out there and they say they give you gave us a lot of leeway with the match, but still, you know, time is time, right. When they when they would go when they would say go out there and we're going to give you ten minutes tonight, so that's not bell to bell ten minutes. That means from the time the music hits the entrances as well. Correct. Well, it depends. Like TV, you know, usually you've got your ring entrances slotted out for its own time, and then the time you get for the match is bell to bell. So it just depends on different things. And a pay per view may be, you know, I don't know. It just depends how each company slots the time out. But then even on indies, when they want you to go to a, a certain time, they're not going to tell you. Usually if they tell you a time on an indie, it's time for the match, bell to bell. So, and you got to look at also, and a lot of guys don't, you got to look at how many matches are on the show. And some promoters will have the times up for each match. And I don't know. I don't, I would always try and be conscious of the time. Because my pet peeve is when people would have a show that's too long. Because you don't want to leave the people just dead tired and going, thank God it's over. I can go home and get to bed and get the kids to bed and blah, blah, blah. You still want to leave them hungry and wanting more. So they can be leaving that place going, that was awesome. I can't wait till next time. And there's so many promoters that will run three and a half, four and a half hour shows and it it it's and plus 
shows that long, by the time the main event gets out there, sometimes half the crowd is gone already. They've already left. Right. Well, and if the show starts at 8 o'clock, I mean, you're, you're looking at, what, midnight before the main event goes on? That That is that is too damn late. Yeah. I've, I wrestled uh, Johnny Storm at the arena in Philly for XPW, and when my music hit, it was 12.35 going to the ring. Wow. And I'm sure a lot of the people had left. But, like I said, you want the people want wanting more. And then you got to think about this. They're sitting on steel chairs and bleachers most of the time. And it's hard enough to sit in cushy movie theater seats for two hours, two and a half hours. Plus, we want them jumping up and down and yelling and screaming the whole time. Well, they get tired after a couple hours. So even if, right. so, even if most of them stay and want their money's worth, they are dead tired by the time the main event comes. And you can't get them to react to anything. Anyway, what I didn't mean to do? go on that diatribe. No, I, I, I like that. that. Was, no, no, no. That's why that's one of my pet peeves is running a show that's too long. You know, and a lot of the promoters say, well, we want to give them their money's worth. Well, if you give them a two and a half hours of some great matches and guys risking their necks, risking life and limb with the spectacular, dangerous stuff, you're giving them their money's worth. You're giving them live in your face combat, you know, and these people, they, they will still be happy with it. I think it's so subjective too when people say give them their money's worth because it's it's quality not quantity, and I think right. you can give a, exactly. a a good performance in an hour and a half, and you can have it just action packed for an hour and a half. But it could it could give them the feeling of oh my god I can't believe I just saw this this was worth my time this is worth my money instead of I don't want to use the phrase subpar matches. Because I've never been in the ring, so it's not my place. But 10, 12 matches thinking, oh, well, we're going to give you, you know, quantity, which doesn't necessarily correlate to a good experience. It just means it's a longer experience. Well, plus, you forget, you know, there's usually an intermission. So the venue can make money on their concession stand and food and drink or whatever, you know. And the, the boys can make money selling pictures and t-shirts and whatever gimmicks they have. So you got to consider an intermission and how long is your intermission going to be? And then besides that, every match has two ring intros. Besides if you have a three-way or four-way, then there's three and four ring introductions, you know? And so it, you really got to, time is very important. And I don't think a lot of people think about that enough well jumping back into here going back to the the infancy everything here with with joel goodart well i um, keep going on left turns here don't i <laughs> no you're fine i you know what i like it though it kind of supplement it supplements this uh by the end of 91 he had gone through uh, a lot of money now he had made some good money in the insurance business but he also was paying money to have his own talk show on WIP 610, and uh, he had to pay for that time slot as well. So, I mean, I do give him some credit for obviously having a show uh, for promoting as well. Obviously, it costs money to go ahead and do that. When you were back in that time frame, that 91, 90, 92 window, how prevalent were 
the publications, the magazines when you were at matches, such as Global or if you were working down in um, in Tennessee? Did you have a lot of those guys there or was it only for some of the quote-unquote super cards? Yeah, I think it was only for the super cards. And, I, well, when I went to Memphis, there they had a photographer there all the time. And I think then, I think that was the first time I'd appeared in any wrestling magazines. So maybe it was, you know, it depended if it was a, a territory that was still up and running, too, that got time in the magazines. But as far as just indies, no. And this might sound silly enough, but when they take your picture, do they have to get any type of consent? I've never asked anybody that question before, but I, I, I was always so. wondering. I think the only consent would be if they were going to make merchandise of you to sell. Then they'd have to have okay. consent. Right. But not just to publish it in a magazine. And in all reality, you would want them to publish it in a magazine so you can get some publicity. Sure. Especially back then because there was no internet yet. Did you keep up with the magazines in that time range? The 90 through 92 range? Not not really. I mean, just even before I went in, got into wrestling, I would just occasionally, if I was at a store and saw a magazine, I would grab it and look at it. But, you know, the magazines that attracted me the most were the ones with the bloody covers. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, because you hear a lot of wrestlers say that they would always, you know, they would subscribe to the Wrestling Observer or they would follow what Meltzer said or does that – or the after mags as they call them. Was, so that just just wasn't what you were into. It wasn't your type of thing. You would you look at it if you could, but it wasn't something that you kept up with. Right. Did you know anyone who religiously kept up with those? <sighs> Not really. I don't think a lot of the boys at that time got them. Well, jumping here in the book, you know, talking about the different experiences that Joel had here with Tri-State Wrestling. We, we talked about these so far, you know, in this first chapter about bringing different guys in, obviously paying absorbent fees for these guys, obviously taking care of their trans as well. Other boys telling guys that, you know, you can get X amount of dollars from this guy, kind of kind of taking advantage of somebody who didn't have a very good business acumen. Um, Joel's also known, and I found this to be kind of interesting here, is he was a mark for certain guys, and he would bring them in because they were people that he liked watching on TV. So once again, throwing it in, into your spectrum here, have you ever found that with promoters that some guys are just marks for certain guys and that no matter what, they'll give them more money than they'll pay on the undercard per se? Oh, yeah. That happens all the time. And there's the sad thing is there's a lot of promoters that will book matches that they want to see and not what the fans would want to see and what would build a bigger house. So there's a lot of promoters that'll just book the whole show to entertain themselves. Very self-serving. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're in a business to make money, you really can't be thinking that way because you're wanting to give people who are paying money something they want to see. You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's about what the fans would want to see. It's what would build a bigger house. 
some critics also said that Goodhart was missing out on making some easy revenue. He never went ahead and videotaped any of the shows that he had put on as well. That, uh, that to me, surprised me. Because wouldn't you think, wouldn't conventional wisdom say, you're bringing these big guys in, these, these big names, you're having these super cards, right? Yeah, you're getting big gates, however, you are losing a chunk of money with their fees and their transportation, but you could recoup some of that if you went ahead and sold tapes. Do you know at that time, in that era, that a lot of promoters filmed some of their stuff? So, for example, for Global, obviously they had a TV deal. Do you remember them ever, or any other promotion you worked for, recording some of the tapes, even that weren't going to be going on to television for resale? No, there were a lot back then that didn't. Now, like in Minneapolis, they would always record that bar show, and the one of the color commentators, Mick Karch, he actually had on a UHF channel a weekly wrestling show. I think it was called... Uh, McCarch's Body Slam Review or something like that. I'm not sure. And so he would have us on actually different episodes and stuff to further our angles and do interviews and whatever. And they would show the matches on that show. But there are also a lot of other shows that Eddie would run that were, you know, in the whole around the entire Midwest area and the Dakotas, Iowa, Wisconsin, and even some of the other local promoters in town at the time too, that they wouldn't record any of it. They just run the show and everyone go home. But if you didn't have a TV show, you know, why bother? And then, uh, I guess, you know, back at that time too, it, it was a lot of tape trading to find stuff too. So it wasn't, it was before everyone actually started recording stuff and then selling VHS tapes of their of themselves of their own matches and stuff. But wouldn't you that agree, came Jerry? Out years had, later, if you had a promotion and you had some some key names on the card, right? Yeah. Why? Okay, let's say you had a Jerry Lynn RVD match as your main event, right? Why wouldn't you yep. want to record that? And even though you weren't going to put it on television, you didn't have a platform, you could go ahead and, and mass produce those VHS tapes and then slap your faces on those things and fans could come and get those, let's say, at intermission. I mean, there, there would be ways to make that, money with that. That may have been before that whole or, thing, that whole idea took off. It could have been even back the then, no one hardly ever sold 8x10s because... With the technology back then, it was too expensive to get 8x10s made in a mass quantity. Wow. Unless they were black and white, then you could make it kind of feasible, but no one was back then was going to pay $10 for an 8x10. So the whole gimmick sales and stuff was different back then. The first time I saw some real serious gimmick sales was when I was in USWA. Uh, it was uh, the Nightmares. Kenny Wayne and Danny Davis, they had like two, three tables set up with a ton of gimmicks. Even stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with wrestling. Little American flags, all kinds. It looked like a flea market. <laughs> I was just, I was floored. I was blown away. I'm like, holy crap. But until I saw that, there was really not a lot of gimmick sales because it was too expensive to get, you know, 8 by 10s made. 
Well, I mean, based upon what you said, if you're making, let's let's say you're making hundred bucks a night, right? And that may be on the high end. You're making that, okay? Plus, right, you Memphis, got... I was making fifty bucks a night. Okay, well then, and so you... and you could. What we would do is go and get like the four by six pictures made, because that's all we could afford. And a lot of nights, you were depending on that gimmick money to feed you and pay for your gas to get to the next shot. Well, what about a place to sleep? You still got to sleep somewhere, right? Oh, that too. There were certain nights, yeah, you 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 had to stay out on the road. You couldn't oh my, get back home, and then you know, then there were almost, nights where I would I'd pull into the parking lot at a truck stop, and I would sleep there. Wow, it's literally the definition of a starving artist. Yeah. Wow. And it, didn't you make the comment, this has been several months ago, but you said someone came up to you and said that you were the, 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 the what was the phrase, um, the best kept secret in wrestling. And you kept saying, no, I don't want to be kept secret. Scream it. <laughs> <laughs> the best kept Scre- secret. <laughs> scream it. Scream it. I don't want to be yeah. a kept secret. Yeah, God. When you When you look at it from that perspective, I mean – from you know how much you're going to make a night versus how much you're going to make on the gimmick table, not to mention what you have to pay to even have a gimmick table, which is coming out of your pocket as well. And if you make any money on the gimmick table, now you have to use that money to to eat, to travel, to hopefully find a place to sleep if you're not teaming up with five or six people in a room. So really, there's not a whole lot left at the end of the day. Right. Wow. No, no. And back then... The heels weren't allowed to go out and sell gimmicks, but the heels got paid a little more. But yeah, the heels didn't go out and sell gimmicks. There was and that, no that uh, was obviously to compensate shaking them hands for. and kissing babies, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're not they're not supposed to be breaking kayfabe during intermission. Yeah, no. Wow. Well, another thing that was kind of interesting when I was going through chapter one here of the book, and um, man, this is so fascinating, you guys. I I, I cannot stress this enough to get this damn book and if you if you don't get a hard copy you can do what i did i got an electronic version i have it right here on my phone right now and the cool thing about this is i can actually jerry this is awesome i can touch uh and highlight different things write notes in here oh, as you well. scared me when you said i can touch you scared the crap out of me <laughs> <laughs> Ever since that Chris Hansen comment, everything's gone to hell. Oh. Oh, man. That's a creepy one. Um, That Joel would walk around backstage shirtless with a championship belt, one of the boys' belts, on his shoulder. Now, once again, I I, I would have to find out maybe through Sabu or somebody who can verify this. But have have you seen – Promoters, and we talked about this a few minutes ago, how people, you know, fans, fans are one thing. That's why they're in the seats. But a promoter is supposed to be looking at it from a business standpoint. And yeah, promoters can kind of mark out for certain guys to entertain themselves. But have you ever seen a promoter put on a belt? I mean, to me, that Worse. seems to be a little, a little, mu- oh God. Worse. I've seen a wrestler before the show when the building's empty, like, Three, four hours, well, probably three hours before the doors are going to open. I got, and it was at a, well, here's what, at first I didn't realize. Well, it, it was at an armory, which a lot of wrestling shows are armories. Well, I saw this okay. guy with three little kids following him around, and he was wearing 
uh, camouflage. So I figured, well, maybe he's one of the soldiers or something. And he was wearing a belt. Right. And I thought, well, maybe he's just having fun with the kids. And he was walked to the ring and he stood up in the ring and he's kind of like posing and looking around. And well, later on that night, I find out he's one of the wrestlers and he was practicing his ring entrance and wearing the belt. I was just like, I was, I was just, I don't know. I'd never seen anything is like any, it before. Is it like necessary? the chairs, the I mean, chairs weren't even put up yet. I don't think they were up yet. Yeah, no, that's not necessary. So, and, but you don't need to. So he's a, <laughs> it, it, no, it's not necessary. No, <laughs> even if you want to practice your ring, I don't even know why you needed to practice a ring entrance at an armory show that probably <laughs> seventy-five people showed up to. But he was practicing his ring entrance with the belt on, and I was—I would, when I found out later what the whole deal was, I was just like, uh, only in wrestling. You just got to walk away and just say it is what it I is. Was just, wow. Yeah. I just thought, just when you think you've seen it all, there'll be something else that'll come up and just take you by surprise. That's uh, that's interesting. So that doesn't surprise you, that uh, reports coming out that he would be shirtless with a belt on his shoulder or around no. his waist. No. No, not really. Wow. Well, by the end of that year... Uh, the writing was on the walls. Obviously, if you haven't been able to tell from us discussing Chapter 1, but Tri-State Wrestling fans uh, started to realize that this wasn't going to be around for very much longer. They started to sell fan packages for season tickets. And if you remember in a prior episode, um, what... Oh, my God. I forget the, the name of the woman. Sweet woman who interacts with us. She was a season ticket holder, and she mentioned it as well. Do you remember when ECW had the season tickets? I know Mikey said he remembered it. No. Okay. So that was obviously prior now, to I'm the- not sure because, you know, when I got I got there, I think I started there September of 97. But, you know, they had all the regulars. You had Hat Guy. You had, I call him Rob Zombie Guy. Uh, you know, all the different guys. But I, right. from what I heard, that some of them would help show up early and help set up chairs and stuff, and they'd let them have those seats every time. That is true. I'm glad you brought that up as well. But, but, I, but I never heard about uh, season tickets. Yeah, so there were season tickets guaranteeing the most loyal fans the same seats. Fans who bought these packages still had tickets under Goodhart, even when Goodhart's Tri-State Wrestling went under. Um, and they obviously received I'm surprised more people cents don't do that. Dollar. That's a good idea. I don't, I'm surprised more this indies is, don't do that, especially good, now that the indies are so hot. You got... The, all these indies that have, are having to run bigger venues and they're selling out everywhere, you'd think you would have season tickets, especially if you're running the same venue that, over and over. That would make sense. Um, just touching on one you just said before, Philadelphia fan, John Bailey, uh, remembered hearing about the news that Tri-State was calling it quits on Goodhart's weekly radio show. Uh, he made the announcement a week before the planned January 25th show. And uh, and that was the the last time that Joel would be heard on the radio, and that was it. He was gone. Bailey remembers that he thought it took a lot of guts for Joel to go on the air and uh, and talk about how the promotion was going under. Now, the rumor has it that that Goodhart was upset because he felt like he put out a good product, 
and Philadelphia fans just did not support him enough. And on his last radio show, it was more of a shoot on the fans. Let me ask you this question here. Would you say at the end of the day, with everything we've chronicled in Chapter 1, it falls on the fans, or do you think a lot more falls on Joel himself for the choices that he made? It falls on the promoter himself. Like, yeah. every every city in the country probably has at least, it seems like at least a dozen indies promotions. And then there's so many times where I've gone and done indies where the promoter will start telling me about some other local indie that's trying to kibosh his show. And I tell him all the same thing. I said, you don't even have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about you know retaliating against them or anything. All you have to do is run a better show. That's all you have to do. Run a better show. Run a good show. And the fans will be there. But obviously, you have to promote. Like I said earlier, you have to let them know that your show is there. Kevin Sullivan has gone on record saying that he felt that uh, that Goodhart is actually an often overlooked part of wrestling history, especially when it comes to the what will be known as the infancy of ECW. He actually said that uh, Goodhart vanished from Tri-State Wrestling or from the wrestling scene altogether after the promotion went down. Here's a quote from Kevin. I never heard from him again after the last show. This is a hard business if you're not in it full time. It's really difficult if you're trying to do this business part time. It's even harder. So I'd agree with that. That's like I said earlier. Every time I've thought about running a show myself, I say nope because – Besides that, you need a small army of people that you can really rely on and depend on that will you, be there and do their thing. Well, and I don't mean do you the wrestlers. Like, I mean a sound guy, uh, music. You know, the music guy, a ring announcer. Uh, and if you have a crew that will bring the ring and set it up and tear it down and bring it back, I mean, it takes a small army of people. Do you think that's the downfall of a lot of promotions that it normally always falls on one guy's shoulders to get it done? And unfortunately, there's there's only so much one person can do. Well, that could be part of it. You know, and I think most of the time, a lot of it's promotion. You know, promoters call themselves promoters, but they don't promote the show. So they're really not a promoter. Wrapping up here in this first chapter, and we will put this one to bed, but um, as Goodhart was going out of business, there was a couple of people who didn't want to see it end, and that was Bob Artiz and another ring announcer at the time. His name was Todd Gordon. Those two decided that even though Tri-State Wrestling was over, that they definitely wanted to keep the wrestling scene going. So we will, uh, once we go into chapter two, we'll pick up the story of Bob Artiz, Todd Gordon, and what would become Eastern Championship Wrestling, the Mike Schmidt Sports Bar, how that all came about. So stay tuned. Chapter two will be coming up. What did you think about this so far? Were there some things that you had already known about this, or were some new stuff that, uh, that came out with you, Jerry? No, most of that was new to me. So it's a great. It's interesting. It it it's a great book, and and you know here's one thing that I always tell people: if you're a wrestling fan, or if you're a sports fan, or you're anything, pick up books and read, read. 
Get get this person's perspective. Get this person's perspective. If you really want to find out what what happens and how things are done, educate yourself. Take time to do the research. And and this book has definitely given me a lot. Like I said, I've already read through the first what three or four chapters. Um, and we're going to go through this with you chronologically, so you can follow along with us. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's the. And infancy. besides that, readers are leaders. <laughs> At least that's what I had. <laughs> An old history teacher of mine used to tell us that all the time. Wow. Readers are leaders. I like that. I like that. Jerry, before we go ahead and we put a bow tie on this one, anything else you'd like to talk about? Anything else you'd like to mention? The floor is yeah, yours, my friend. No, not offhand. I think that's about it. Well, on behalf of myself and everybody in the wrestling community, congratulations on uh, on AEW's first show. I watched it. I loved it. Oh, can't wait thank for you. the next episode. I think you guys did a wonderful job. Um, I think we hit a home run. It was a good show. I, I when I got home, uh, my wife and Annabelle watched it, and, she, and Annabelle don't watch wrestling at all. And she, Pam said she watched the whole thing, and so she wants awesome. to go down and see it live when we come to Nashville. So that's great. But the, wow, she that's awesome. recorded it, and I watched it again when I got home, and it didn't even feel like two hours. The show flowed r- very well. It did. The show went really, really well. And, and like I said before, you guys should be very proud of what you're doing. I mean, from a wrestling fan's perspective, not even my relationship with you and all that aside, how cool is it now to have wrestling on TNT again? I remember sitting in my parents' uh, living room when – Tony Schiavone signed off for the final Nitro, and it bothered me. And I thought, oh, man, this is not going to be good. And it was, what, almost 20 years before, you know, it's back on network television. Now, obviously, you know, you have your Impact Wrestling, and I want to give them credit. They're doing great stuff as well. Impact's doing great. Ring of Honor is doing great stuff here. So I definitely recommend people to watch as much wrestling as possible. You know, and I talked about this on the phone earlier. If you have access and you're a wrestling fan, why would you not watch as much as you can? Exactly. That's why it amazes me when people want to cut down other organizations. In the 80s when we got cable and I could see all the territories, I loved all of it. I didn't say, oh, I hate this promotion. I wanted to watch all that I could, and I loved it. And I still love it. Right. Right now you have a buffet. Right now in front of you, you have a buffet of wrestling. And if uh, if you're smart, just go ahead and enjoy it. Because remember, it was 20 friggin' years, guys, before we had this last time. So um, I do also want to say this really quick here, Jerry. I was real excited. Uh, Josh Chernoff. Hopefully I'm saying that right. I actually had a great conversation with him. He's got a show on Fight TV. And uh, I watched an episode where he was, he was ribbing... Uh, Ribbing AEW, you didn't have a profile picture. Do you remember right. this? Yep, yeah. I met that him was hilarious. And actually, I, I talked to him uh, at the building at TV. What a great so dude. I, will, uh, I, yeah. I had a great conversation So I'll be doing a... He wants to interview me for his show on Fight TV, so we'll be doing that, I think, when we're in, when we're in Philly. That is fantastic. So, guys, I highly recommend. He's a great dude. And I hope I'm saying this correctly because, y- you know, I-, I botch things when I try to pronounce people's names. Josh Chernoff. He, uh, you could follow him at Chernoff Show. Um, good dude. Good dude. So. Yes. Well, that's going to do it for this week. That's it. 
Hopefully, All Mikey's right. painting some nails and braiding hair, and I don't know what what, what else do the chaperones do when when girls have sleepovers. What, I, I mean, don't know, but what, some of them might wake up with bright red hair. I don't know. That would be fantastic. He passes yeah. out, and they paint his nails. I would love that. Oh boy. <laughs> If you like what we're doing, guys, please go on over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Let us know you enjoy the show. Let us know favorite moments, favorite episodes. Remember, all of those reviews help us climb the iTunes charts. Also, remember this. If you want to go ahead and get merchandise, go on over to ProWrestlingTees.com. You can go ahead and get yourself Jerry Lynn merchandise. All you got to do is put his name in the search box. Do the same thing with Mikey Whipwreck or... You can go on over to frmpod.com. That's going to have all the links for merchandise as well, how to get a hold of the guys if you would like to interact with them and buy some merchandise. So that is going to do it for this week. We will see you next week on Front Row Material. Sayonara. The world of NLW Radio never stops. 